Hey, this is Sully from the band Theft to the Gallows, REB Records, recording live from Villa Gorilla Studios and the Gothic House. And this is my What the Punk podcast.
it's a it's a thing. So what's interesting is when I texted you about interviewing interviewing you, you said, "Well, I'm not really sure what we're going to talk about." And then the follow-up text from you was, hey, I'm going to be making a mushroom forest out of paper. Can you maybe help out with that? Oh, and by the way, I have this giant elephant that we're going to sand down and put into the mushroom forest for what? Yeah, there's going to be nothing to talk about on this. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, come on. And then, so you just get here. And then you said, well, I just did this deep dive into Pearl Jam, who I hate. So what I'm going to do is listen to every album in order to really make sure I hate them. You're a complete... Oh, and then you were going to bike here from the city. And I would have. I know. If it hadn't been for that fatal accident. The bike accident. <laughs> I know, you got, you got your... In which my bike is now dead. It's and totally. To get another. But yeah, I, I was going to do all of those things. And I am still going to do all of those things, hopefully. Well, I mean, that's why I wanted to interview you, because you are somebody that, once you set your mind to do something, as ridiculous as it sounds, and most people... And, and tell me if you get this. Hey... I'm going to put on this show and there's going to be an elephant and mushrooms and fairies and I'm going to have these bands. It's going to be amazing. And everyone rolls their eyes and says, yeah, yeah, Claire, sure, got it. And then seven months later, it happens and then they say, oh, 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 yeah, yeah. You're still doing that? Does that happen? Or do people, once you say it, now they understand it from you that, yes, if you say you're going to do, if you build it, they will come. That if Claire says she's going to do it, everybody is on board that it's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, well, I think it's, at this point, it's both where it's like, it stems from this desire. You know, I think if you're around a lot of creative people, you realize that, you know, half of creativity is being unafraid to say what you want to do, right? To have dreams and to like, you know, vocalize them. That's like the first step, right? And, you know, going, growing up and, and going then to like film school and being around musicians, it's like everyone's got a million ideas and everyone's trying to sell you on their idea, how cool they are, their dreams. And I always felt like I was really good at talking about my dreams, but I was, I was becoming somebody that you know, talked a lot, but there was, like, nothing to show for it. And so I, of course, like many other people, felt really insecure about what I had to offer to my friends, to, like, the world. And so I realized that even if I fail, and that, I think, is the hardest part, you still got to just do something eventually, you know, because after a while, people just stop listening. And so I think that now I have built up somewhat of a reputation in the last like five years or so of doing what I say I'm going to do. And maybe it's not immediate, right? Yeah, maybe it's seven months later, but that's okay. You know, you can take your time. In fact, sometimes the powerful aspect of taking your time is that people kind of fucking forget. And then, you know, a year, two years later, you're like, hey, remember this? Like, I fucking did it. <laughs> Bitch. Yeah. <laughs> Let's well, go. <laughs> and that's the thing, right. too. It's like, I know people say, oh, yeah, like, fucking Claire. Here she goes. Like, you know, uh, 
here we go. It's going to be some crazy thing. And a lot of times people do still doubt me and they express it to my face or, you know, I know that they talk about it sometimes maybe, you know, when I'm not around like Claire, you know, and that's kind of what I use actually as like a motivator. I mean, deep down, maybe I do have like the soul of a punk rocker because I have a lot of rage. And I think that rage and that feeling like that I have to prove something all the time is what really drives me to complete things or at least to try. Hold on, rewind for a second. <laughs> you you said, okay, we'll come back. To, I wrote to note rage. We'll come back to the rage. You said earlier though, so you went to film school? I did, yeah. Where'd you go? I went to DePaul. I, um, I actually, so I'm from Sacramento, California, but I didn't apply to any schools in California. The goal was to go somewhere that I had no connection to at all that I could kind of start over um, and, and really try to create something different for myself. What was the impetus for that? I mean, I think that I felt like I was a really mean and kind of hateful person growing up. Um, I didn't really have a lot of very close friendships at all. And I felt like if I went somewhere new, I would have the opportunity to be myself. I felt like I'd get, I had been pigeonholed into sort of this type of person that I didn't really relate to anymore. Why were you a mean person? What, what do you think? Why would that moniker come about for you? Well, or that I mean, reputation. We moved around a couple, t- a few times when I was in my like formative years. So between like the ages of six and um, like thirteen, and so you know, oh, one, you're like right up to puberty. L- awesome. Yeah, you're just. <laughs> Okay. And moving schools and, and, you know, I was held back once and it's like all of this, like we know now kind of like minor, like psychological, emotional damage occurs when you keep uprooting a child from, you know, everything that they know. Um, well, hold on. So do you think that goes, see, in me, in, in my limited knowledge of the universe, mm-hmm. a kid would go one of two ways, shut down and become really shy and not say anything or actually become really boisterous or obnoxious right. or mean as our self-defense mechanisms because what's the point of making close ties if they're going to get broken anyway? Yes. And so I did actually have a beautiful mixture of both. One, I got really into Holocaust literature in third grade and I would read all the time, like during recess, during class, I would hide books in my books, you know, And it became such a problem, you know, we had, like, issues with, like, teachers and stuff like that. Um, And two, I became a a piece of shit. (laughs) And I was really mean to people who tried to interact with me. And I was very, like, yeah, boisterous and hateful and opinionated. And I think because of the amount that I read and because I was reading about things that I didn't fully understand but that I had an emotional understanding of to some extent... um, I had this very much, like, you know, I was kind of precocious. I I definitely was, I felt like it didn't really matter. And looking back, I was right. But, um, you know, like, as a kid, to be reading about, like, the Holocaust. Well, in and, third grade. Right. And, and those were probably adult <laughs> books at that time. Yeah. There, there weren't these, a graphic novel. No. You know, watering it down so kids can kind of, you know, spoon feed them. 
Well, and I sought out the fucked up shit. Like I wanted to know. In fact, I would, I remember going to the library and I remember look, you know, I was a big, like I would peruse the book before I got it. And I would specifically look for certain kind of stories, especially like firsthand accounts. I loved, um, just, I wanted someone who was in the camps. I was really averse to people who were like, peripheral to the camps who were just like they had like those you know observer accounts and I felt like those were (laughs) not good enough you know so I really did seek out like I wanted to read about people's like actual trauma and I think it was cathartic for me so why do you this is taking a totally different turn (laughs) welcome to what the punk right I mean well and that's what I got into college for was theology Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't don't go there yet. Hold on. So (laughs) I'm still working through your teachers discovering Holocaust books. At some point, like, oh, she's reading about the Holocaust again and again (laughs) and again. So what was the intervention from the teachers that you're not paying attention in school and you're just obsessed with this topic? Well, I don't think they really, you know, I was, they didn't, I don't think, I'm not sure I should ask my parents if they caught on to, like, the Holocaust as being the theme, but... I mean, I, I mean, do you find this weird that most kids will have a drinking problem or some other problem? You yeah, had a yeah, yeah. Holocaust problem. I had problem a, col- a Holocaust problem, yeah. Of, of interest. And I'm not even Jewish, which is also hilarious. Um, but, yeah, I... and Well, I would pepper it in with, like, Lord of the Rings. So it was, like, all good. You know, I had, like, a balanced diet of trauma and uh, fantasy and, you know, all religious subtext, of course. I had a C.S. Lewis phase as well in there. So, yeah, a lot of... Well, and I also went to Catholic school my entire life. So you have this religious sort of perspective. And I think it's natural when you're learning about religion, um, especially Western religions. You know, a lot of it focuses on mercy, but then there's sin, you know, and they definitely sprinkle that in healthily enough and... There's repression, of course, and then there's structure and ritual. And you're looking for, you're trying to find the holes. And I think when you start as a kid learning about horrible things, bad things that happen to people that are good, that, you know, for no reason or seemingly no reason, you really like, that's the moment where you really start to, um, I think, create a better idea of like what is religion why are people so obsessed with religion why are people shoving this down my throat you know and i always wanted to know why i just had a thought can i cut you off yeah please so you've got this c.s lewis token thing going on on one end then you're also getting the sky god narrative in catholic school i was also raised catholic so i can you know about the sky god i know all about it more than I want to know. And and I have a long history with the church, so that's another conversation. But you have that going on. Did you find it hard to believe that when you discovered about what happened during the Holocaust to the Jews by the Germans and the Nazis, were you like, wait a minute, this is a complete counter-narrative to this fantasy world that feels safe and magical, but then in real life, these horrible things are being done to people who, I mean, it's horrible. So did you find that, like, just so unnerving? And it, it, do you know what I'm saying? I'm, yeah. Maybe I'm not saying this no, correctly. No, you are. I, you know what it's it a is, counter-narrative. Though. You're giving, you're being told something, 
And then you have like Lord of the Rings, which is this whimsical, but there's also a journey going on. Yeah. And same with Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe and the whole thing with C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. And was it The Pale Queen? I think what's one of the books. Yeah. Um, I think it's the first one, isn't it? The Pale Queen. That one, there is a Pale Queen. I don't know if that's the first one. But it's called... I'm saying it wrong. It's called um, The Magician's Nephew is technically number one, I believe. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, you know, you're correct. But, like, does that, did that act as a counter-narrative of, yeah, but this fucked up shit is, went on, and how is this even possible if there's a God? Like, how does this even work? Well, I mean, that's how you get into it, but that's not the narrative that, that drives you once you actually start exploring it. It's, that's how you start. You start with that reaction, and then it becomes something I think a lot more um, fulfilling because the hum- I think human beings, that's stopping at like one emotion, which is like, what? You know, you're like, you feel betrayed somehow. But then after that, it's like, we can't just settle in betrayal, right? You have to, it, funny enough, man's search for meaning like Viktor Frankl, right? It's like you you then go further and you look for an explanation and you look for something that's going to make it okay. And I think that's the part of, that's that cathartic feeling that I was talking about that I felt from those kind of readings is, you know, you feel really touched and understood and you feel like you're a part of something bigger than yourself when you read about other people's suffering and their ability to hope and their faith because you know in especially firsthand accounts of the holocaust faith is so present that's all you have left and that's all these people had left and they're praying to the same god that i learned about in catholicism but their faith is so much more real because you strip away the structure and the ritual and what you get at the end of the day is a bunch of people coming together and praying or believing in something that is out there looking down at them like and and, and jews don't even believe in heaven or hell which is also mind blowing because then you realize it's all here on earth and they're creating their own peace on earth in a horrible situation, in a hell. So it, it made me feel more empowered to deal with difficult situations in my childhood. And in comparison to what, what they were going through. Right. I mean, it made like, me what look a, what, like what a, a fucking a- pussy. Right. And it helped. It helped me feel less like I deserved something. Like that I deserved to be treated better, you know? It was just like, well, this is the struggle, you know? that And, and my struggle is so easy comparatively. I mean, it was still hard for me, but I think, like, that provided me with a lot of peace is, is just the feeling that, like, other people have struggled, and they've struggled a lot more, you know? So, so I'm just in it, and I'm going to deal with this however I can.
So as you got older, you decided that it's time to get out. It's time to forge my own way. Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that I realized was that the more I read, you know, they tell you it's it's like the <laughs> shortcut to being worldly. And I realized that California was a fucking bubble. Um, there are great people there, but, you know, it's different. I wanted to I wanted to go somewhere else where it felt like there were people who really struggled, you know, in my demographic. I mean, I was raised like upper middle class with a bunch of other upper middle class people in a beautiful place. It's like, okay, you know, <laughs> and I, I always say this, like Chicago saved my life in a way, because I don't think that I would be the person that I am if I hadn't left California entirely. So had you always been interested in film? Had you done acting growing up? Had you been part of that? Did you try to get part of a creative circle there? And did that lead? Or did you just decide after high school, you know what, I'm just going to go and I'm going to pick film school? Yeah, I mean, well, I was really into film in the sense that I've always been into journalism. But then someone told me that journalism was dead and I believed them, which they were right, but sometimes I regret that. Um, and so I was into, um, you know, the news. Like, I wanted to be a newscaster for a while. I wanted to be someone that was important. And I think I struggle with the idea of, like, acting because sometimes I think acting's not super important. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but then I went to school for theology. And I thought, because I love Joseph Campbell and, you know, the power of myth and the oh hero's journey. Oh, and I love Joseph. I, well, I know, right? I got hero's journey on my bookshelf right now. Yo, it's, I don't want to, and I don't mean this to like, you know, um, make this smaller, but um, dads fucking love Joseph Campbell. I don't know why it is. Well, I, did you watch, you ever watch the Bill Moyers interviews? Of course. I mean... It's, ama- it's amazing. You don't even need to read the book. Just sit down and, and, and watch them. No, totally. The book is dry comparatively. Yeah. yeah it's, but it's- that was what I went to school for. But it makes sense because, you know, again, in that Bill Moyers interview, they talk about Star Wars. They use that as the reference, right, to explain what it is he's talking about with the hero's journey. And as somebody who was interested in theology, theology is all just stories, stories that help you become a better person and to understand why things happen in the world. And, you know, it's oral tradition, truly. And so it's a really easy leap from theology to film. And I got into school, I took some theology classes, I went, oh, I can read all about this in my spare time for fun. Now I want to go back to film something that I was already really interested in. So, yeah. And then did you do that? Did you make a film? Did you write scripts? Did you make that leap? Yeah, I mean, I did film. Um, You know, I wanted, surprise, surprise, like, complete control. And so I went into documentary filmmaking for a bit because with documentaries, you have a lot more control as a director. You edit your own shit usually because there's no funding, you know? So it's a really, like, on-the-ground kind of, like, fun way to get into film. And then... So when you say fun... Your fun is you want to control it. Yeah. All aspects of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's it, fun for me. Okay. Yeah. Just want to clarify. Yeah. I mean, it's collaborative. See, see, one thing that I'm really grateful to film school for is 
you learn that even if you're the director of a film, what makes you a good director? Because when I, I like control, obviously I do. I admit it. I work on it all the time because you can't be a piece of shit. You know, you can't hoard power or control. So what you say is working on it, you mean sharing with people and collaborating more. Yes, because I love collaborating. Because I think what you realize as a director is that you need to put people who are really good at specific things in those roles, and then you need to trust them, and then they deliver. And what you then do is put everyone together. So through doing film school, I realized that my actual talent and maybe my my greatest talent and really only talent, it all stems to one thing, which is I'm a people person. And I, no matter what medium I take up, it's always going to rely on me being dependent on others for their specific talents to create something that's bigger than all of us. But you're also giving them the space for them to be artistic and creative without feeling stifled. Yes. And that in itself, I think, is is a talent. Well, it's a it's a it's a skill too, right? Like so, you know, I've had so many bad experiences working with people. I've had, you know, friendships dissolve. I've had issues relationally and Right. It takes a long time, though. Everyone's different, too. Some people need more direction. Some people, you say one thing, and they're like, oh, why, you know, why are you micromanaging me? So, yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult game to play, but the reward, I mean, it's just, it's so much more than I could ever do on my own. So when did you switch? So was it right out of film school? Did you try to make a living at Document, or did you just all of a sudden start, I'm going to start putting some shows on? Like, what was the next step creatively for you? Because I know you from the shows at Nighthawk, which you're putting, is a bar in Chicago. Where is that located at? Um, <clears throat> sorry, I don't know the exact address. I think it's 4744 North Kimball, but Kimball and Lawrence. Kimball and Lawrence, Albany Park. In Albany Park. Yeah. One of the coolest bars, actually. My favorite bar. Ever. No, I'm with you, like 100%. It's amazing. Yeah, it's totally cool. And... I know you from those shows and just from knowing six degrees of separation of Claire Manning because you sure. know a lot of people. But what was the next step before you started doing what you're doing now creatively after film school or was this it? No, I mean, so the next step was learning that I was a people person and that I really wanted to um, elevate other people's talents and that made me feel good about myself. I went, I tried to work in um, programming so film curation for film festivals. So I interned with Mimi Plache at the Chicago International Film Festival, um, the coolest woman in the world with the best taste. So it was a true delight. Um, but, you know, surprise, surprise, funding for film festivals that are not, you know, con or fucking, you know, the Toronto, whatever, you know, it's bullshit. It's awful. It's hard. And, you know, they didn't... I, I was also very young, but, you know, they don't have the resources to hire a lot of people. So that was sort of like a, okay, if I really want this, then I have to pursue it by, like, building up a resume of programming and curating. You know, of course, you get jaded almost immediately because you're watching, like, four or five films a day um, and ranking them and writing summaries, and most of them are garbage, but 
people are trying, you know, so... And so then, okay, yeah, well, yeah. So I don't. I'm very ignorant about this field. Yeah. So you're talking about new directors. Yes. Coming and up old. and old, but but getting films. And when you say curating, you're actually reviewing and yeah. going through and saying this one is worthwhile because of this. And then, what do you do after you curate it? Like, do you? Well, so you watch them. So, you know, I was like, because I was an intern, I was like first line of defense. I'm the vanguard of all the bullshit. And so, like, me and a couple other people, we'd be getting, like, yeah, I mean, five films a day, whatever. You sit there, you watch essentially the whole thing. I mean, there were you don't really skip around because sometimes you get surprised. You know, it's not like a song where you can kind of figure out where it's going in 30 seconds. With films... It's 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 honestly wonderful sometimes how they really pick themselves up and you're like holy shit this went somewhere totally different you know so anyway so you watch them and then after you write a summary of everything that went on pretty much everything important and then you write a review right separate from a summary because then you're kind of critiquing you're like these are the points I thought were amazing you know this is where I feel like it failed and then you rank it. Um, and they have a system of ranking, and then there's a person at a higher level than you that then watches it and then ranks it. If then, if, if they liked your review, right, well, right. So what if they did, what, what if your review said it was bad? So if it's like one to five, and I rated something as like a two or a one, it just immediately gets thrown out. Okay, so right, so that's the curation yeah. part of it. Sometimes someone will double back and they'll, they try to have as much overlap like in checking as possible, right? So like sometimes, you know, if they read the review and the summary after, you know, I ranked it like a two and they're like, mm, but maybe this is just Claire's taste and maybe Claire's not into this. Then, you know, someone else would probably watch it. But basically, yeah, you're vetting films until they get to Mimi herself or, you know, Anthony Kaufman, who's the um, programmer for the documentary portion of it. So, and then they watch it and and they know best, 99.9% of it. And then they'll put those into the festival. Yeah, yeah. And it's cool. It's really, really cool, especially when... um, Especially when you you know program something that you watch that's from fucking nobody. There were these kids in NYU that made a film that I saw, um, and it was incredible. Well, what's it called? <laughs> Do you remember? I think it was called um, "Why Are We Not Cats." It's like my most proud moment. Now I can't remember that. I mean, I think, I think it's called "Why We." Why if it are pops we not cats. back in your head, say it. Yeah, I think it's and, "Why Are We Not Cats." So tell me about the movie. Oh my god. So this is the coolest fucking movie. So uh, garbage truck worker, garbage man in, a, in New York, he gets fired. He kind of sucks. He's like a loser. And then he goes to upstate New York. He gets a gig delivering. He, like, rents a car and delivers this, um, like, organ, like, small organ piano. And... He ends up at this, like, dump yard. Some shit happens. The car breaks down, meets this, like, super, you know, problematic hot girl who's, like, the manic pixie dream girl kind of vibe. And she, like, lives up there all year round, and it's super isolated. And she's got, like, this warehouse, and it's got all these, like, crazy... She's, like, kind of... She's really artistic and, like, really interesting and kind of has built her own world 
And he just, like, goes to these, like, weird, creepy, like, house shows up there where, like, people are doing weird drugs, like, huffing gasoline and shit, you know? Like, and, and so he gets kind of into that. He's definitely, like, a lost person. But then through all of that, he kind of, like, creates this really beautiful, weird relationship with this girl. And they both eat hair. That's, like, one of the things that, like, brings them together is they both have this anxiety disorder where they eat hair, their own hair. Like a cat, like licking yes. itself, like a yes. hairball. Yes. And, and so at the end of the film, I mean, I, do you want to know? Totally. Okay. Oh, spoiler so alert, the, everybody. Spoiler, spoiler alert. alert. So at the end of the film, um, you know, they finally, like, fuck, and it's awesome. And they, like, he wakes up, and she's, like, comatose. And he, he notices that she's eaten all of his fucking hair while he was, like, sleeping after this beautiful night together. And and so he calls 911, and there's been a snowstorm. And so it'll take the ambulance, like, two hours to get to where they're at. And they're, like, on the phone with him, walking him through basically, like, triage because she's going to die um, and he has to get like a you know a knife, and he has to like slit her open and take out a hair rock that is formed that's like the size of like you know a disco ball in her stomach, and he like saves her life. And at the end of the film, there's this beautiful scene after some other bullshit. There's this beautiful scene where she's decorated the hair rock with like all these little mirrors, like a disco ball. <laughs> And they're like dancing underneath it, and I saw this, and I saw this film. I, I, I just gotta. Yeah. At this point, I'm thinking, you're fucking crazy. This sounds right? like the dumbest movie, and it's amazing. Okay, see, and that's the thing, though. It's like I can tell you the plot of this film, and you're like, okay, what would I ever get from watching this? But the way it's done, the way it's acted, the set design, the cinematography, like the score. I mean, everything about this film was perfect to me. And the people who made it were NYU students. And it was like their first film. And it was, and, and so, you know, it's like you just sometimes you just got to see it, you know. As crazy as it may sound. Right. And that's, again, perfect, like, comparison to... When I tell somebody I want to make a fucking mushroom forest and have a show in it, it may sound stupid. And you may say, why? What's the connection? And it's like, don't worry about it. Just show up. You'll have a good time. You'll probably be wowed. Maybe you won't. I don't give a shit. But, you know, you kind of have to see things through because simple ideas, and that's a very simple plot. It's got some weird twists and whatever, but, like, it's a simple plot. They eat hair. She almost dies. They fall in love. He huffs some gasoline. Like, that's it. Those are the elements. And yet, put together, it's a masterpiece. And, you know, sometimes you just got to, like, follow it. Did that make it into the, the film reveal? fest? Yeah, make- yeah, no, it made it into the film fest, yeah. Did, was they, it was well received? Out. Oh, they were they so excited. They were so excited. I got to meet them. And my and my programmer, I'll never forgi- forgive her or forget... Um, uh, Anthony Kaufman was like, "Do you want to meet him?" And like, it's, uh, and then he told them, he goes, "Yeah, she's the reason you're here." And I was like, "Oh my god, stop!" <laughs> it what was a, it was well received, feeling. but it's like hard because again, then this goes into other issues, and it's the same with shows. It's like you can put on a great show, 
You can show a great movie. Who's going to show up? How do you get people to show up? How do you reach people, the right people, where it's like that's their thing and you know they're going to love it? How do you get to them? Because not only do you need them to get, get there and they have a good time, those are the people that tell other people, those are your quote-unquote influencers that, like right now I'm going to go watch the movie. <laughs> I'm going to go track down this movie you were yeah. talking about. because I'll try to find it for you. Well, I'll just, I'll, this thing called the internet, I'll find it. Uh-huh. You know, good I'm, luck. I'm, you think it'll be hard to find? Oh, yeah. Re- yeah, well, okay, that's another. Okay, this goes into, now we're talking about something totally different, but like this goes into like one of the things that makes me jaded about working in film curation and film festivals is that once a movie is screened at a festival, then there's like this auction part of it where people are trying to buy the rights to the film. But if it's a no-name, nobody film, there's almost no value to it. And the value is really inherent in like, you know, press and in word of mouth. And so... I, I mean, maybe it's out there. I hope it is. I'm, I'm hoping. But it's like, you know, a lot of these films just get put on Vimeo. And, like, even then, it's like, okay, great, you can watch it. But, like, sometimes there are films that I've looked for that I'm like, where the fuck did this go? Because somebody probably bought it thinking there was a market for it. And then something else that they, they bought took to off. It. And they're like, eh, well, whatever. Yeah, yeah. We own it now. Uh-huh. So, so, and the filmmakers can't put it out because they sold it. Probably to make their next movie. Yep, it's tragic. Yeah, it's like true. It's like it's like art. It's like um, when you know someone paints something, and it's like amazing, and they're like the best new artist, and you're like, okay, cool, let me go look for it. And you can't find it, can't see it anywhere because someone fucking bought it. Some rich person put it in their mansion or in storage, even worse. That sucks. I know. I would hate that as a as a filmmaker. Well, I think the same thing with musicians too, where you're signed to a label and the label records you, and then like, yeah, we're not going to release it, and you don't own it, right? How well, already it happens across the board in art, which is why experiential art still has a place. You know, something that isn't recorded, something that like there is no evidence of necessarily. That's why it's still special and something that you should still pursue because, you know, the luxury of experiencing a show, a song that's never been played before or something that's... Like, that's where the artist could play an unreleased song is live. And I think that's where the freedom exists. I think that's our segue into what you're doing now. So hold on one second because the lawnmowers are going and I have to close my front door. So we're going to pause... And we're going to pick it up at what you're doing now.
And we're back with coming off film and curating and how film students sell their films and then it, you may or may not see it, which is a complete bummer. But you were just saying to me as, we warmed, as I warmed up my coffee here that isn't that live music though? Right, isn't that where a band can go out and still play their song? They might not have the recorded version of it, but that's a complete bummer for, for art students too. And there should be something where they should be allowed to, if you sold it, and they're not going to release it, hey, can we have this one-off? We want to show it. Like I wish they would do that. People would do that. I wish companies would be cool enough. But maybe they're still waiting for that director or those directors to become en vogue, so maybe they come up with something Five years from now, hey, by the way, we have their first film here that we bought, and we'll do limited... Does that happen? I mean, yeah, it's an asset. Like, the comparison I made to a painting, you know, a painting from an artist, one of their first... Like, one of the early Picassos. You know, now, it's not only valuable because it's Picasso, but because it's an early painting where you can see him putting together elements that you later see, right? So, and there's like a, an, an intrigue, an inherent intrigue to owning or seeing that painting that you don't have in like a later work. It's the same with a filmmaker. Um, you know, there's a filmmaker I love called um, Xavier Dolan. Dolan? Sorry if I'm, I'm not French. Um, and he's amazing. And he, one of his cool little projects is he was asked to do a commercial for, um, fuck, was it the French or Canadian government? And it was an anti-bullying commercial. He was asked to direct it. And I show it to people all the time because to me, it's a perfect film. Like it's a perfect, not even commercial, like it's, it's beyond that. It's about this boy who actually, this young actor, ends up being the star in a considerable amount of his films later on in his work. Um, but it's this boy who gets bullied at this like private school, and it's set to this um, song by this band called like Indochine or Indocine, and and it's called College Boy, the song, and it's like this really like popular kind of like eighties esque anthem song and it it's like a music video and at the end of the commercial you know the bullying escalates and they end up crucifying this boy like this should this would not be able to be shown on television in the United States at all they like shoot him they tase him they put like christmas lights on this kid it's crazy but it also is perfect and and so anyways i you know you watch, hold on, hold on. yeah how long is it like three minutes long yeah like three minutes it's, so it's a it's a three minute basically full yeah movie yes just from start to finish you're watching this thinking there's no way he's gonna wrap this up in three three and a half yeah minutes. or like that it's gonna be lame i don't know you're always like you're just like where is this going and then it just escalates and escalates and you're like holy fucking shit they're crucifying a kid in the front of the school and you know, and there's like this really beautiful use of like blindfolds and like his ignorance on the part of like the adults and the law enforcement. And it's like all this different like social commentary. And they, they, you know, 
they immediately go to like you know point their tasers and guns at the bully and then the bully points at the other kid and like blames him and so they end up just shooting the kid who was victimized like so it's awesome but my point is that this is a filmmaker and no matter what he does there is value in the little things he does because his mind and his his eye is so good and his storytelling is so wonderful that you know if it if this was a piece of art it would still be a window to like him as an artist as a whole um and that's why like people shit on like one hit wonders i love the 80s <laughs> i love the era of one hit wonders you take a band like blind melon where they had one song that really popped off no rain and that's a great song right but you listen to that song and it stands out from the rest of their material sure but it actually really is indicative of the rest of their material as well. It's a- Their other great song on that album is Tones of Home. Yes. Which is a phenomenal song. Absolutely. And and they're there's so they're so much more of a complex band, so much more interesting and talented, right, than what that one song, which rose to fame, really indicates. And so even though it's depressing that people can be like in literally enslaved creatively by bigger entities with money and power and influence there are still ways in which you can like continue on and not be cuz i mean i think part of it too is like why do we even care that's why the underground scene exists it's like you can play you you can book a bill like a really you'd be on an awesome bill at, at the metro and have like a non-compete clause, right? And that can be like a month or two before to a month or two after and still play like 10 DIY shows in that in that time. And they'll never know. Like, why would they know? They don't care. I mean, oh, well, maybe they care, but they never find out. And it's like, so, I mean, that's why it's really important to be doing things that are like not for profit they're under the radar because it allows you to see like real art happen and you don't have to really pay for it and that's great you know je serai trop différent pour leur vie si tranquille pour ces gens i want to see you
Rassure-moi, un petit peu moins fragile, ça ira. I want to see you. your first show that you did musically okay so the show things yeah um that was like 
years later. So the show thing happened on accident. I was living with um, Ben and Jerome, my, my, my best buddies, and we were um, big dreamers. And we, through a mutual friend of theirs, um, were offered a warehouse space um, across the street from where like Music Factory was, is, was, Belmont, right mm-hmm. by the river. And it was a warehouse right across the street. And the owners were going to basically tear it all up, remodel the inside and make it into some like bougie, like, you know, pay a subscription to like use it for yoga kind of shit. And they were, they were like, well, you can, you can have it for like three months before, you know, this all happens for like, yeah, for like nothing. I think it was like 300 a month and I don't even know, I forget who paid, but, um, (laughs) I went in there and I had met this guy at my, at the cafe I work at, same day cafe. He was like a regular, his name was Henry and he had just moved here and he had a background in like set design. He had like graduated he went to graduate school for this shit. So he's like very talented. Um, him and then a few of my other friends, um, Michael, who now works with me on everything I do is like a graphic designer and also like just manual laborer. He's like with me in the trenches. And um, we went in there and we just started painting this warehouse. And I should mention that it's actually really interesting. There was a girl I knew named uh, Christine and she was living in Chicago. I don't think she lives here anymore. And she was doing these, like, shows. And she was like, hey, do you want to help me with the show? So initially, sorry, the show was supposed to be a collaborative show between us. And mostly hers, because I really had no idea what it entailed, what it was all about. I just knew that I had a space to offer her to help her out. And I was like, she was out of the country or she was away on a trip or something. And she was like, hey, can you get started for me? And, you know, looking back, I feel kind of bad because I feel like, you know, because I got started without her, it wasn't 100% her vision by the end of it. And that's something that, like, again, learning, having done a lot of these now, it's like, it's really important that you're always super communicative when you work collaboratively with people because you don't want anyone to ever feel like you stepped on them. And, you know, I'm so grateful to her for giving me the opportunity and it was her show ultimately. But I felt such a sense of pride and um, ownership of it as well, which is, you know, granted, I mean, we did a lot of work on it, but... That's what really kind of started everything was someone gave me space, a space to use, to do whatever I wanted. I offered it to this girl. This girl was like, I do these things. And, and then, hold on, now talk yeah. about the show though. What was the show she was going to put there? That it you- was like, oh, fucking, it was like heaven and hell and it was like black and white and... So there was going to be a look to it there was inside a bands? Yeah. Are we doing, is this bands, uh, house music? Were, is it is no. it DJ? Is it... So it was, yeah, it was like mixed um, genre bands. I remember Town Criers headline, which were, they were big at the time. Town Crier? Town Criers, yeah. Town Town Criers. And they were like rock and had some like fun indie and and punk elements to them. And then, um, oh, fuck, who else played? Oh, my friend Jason, the man, um, he has this um, 
side project that he does with his two best friends and it's instrumental um, and it's amazing and they only ever perform like usually when I book them I actually which makes me upset by the way Jason um, but then they did their instrumental thing and we had like film going on in the background which was really cool it's called Batchmeisters their group oh, I'm sorry say again Batchmeister Batchmeister yeah they're my favorite they're top five band in the city really oh yeah can I? Can we? Are they recorded? No. You can only see them live at your gigs. Yes. That's there. There you go. It's ridiculous. And it's not on purpose. I didn't do this on purpose. They did this. You know what I'm saying? Like it's not me. Like I, I just keep booking them. It's their fault for not getting their shit together and playing more. But I'm gonna come to a show and just record them and then just throw them onto the yeah, podcast. Yeah, dude. Do it. <laughs> do it. There's also this band called Kraj. K-R-A-J and they're amazing and it's my friends like early college friends like one some of my oldest friends in the city and it's headed by my friend Davis Connors who in my mind is probably one of the most like talented musician artists like he to me has like an incredible mind for music um, and he's incredibly neurotic but in a way that works out, you know, like he's a real he, artist. Yeah. He's a real fucking he's, artist. He's totally out he's there. Di- I mean, I've heard, I've heard rumors. He's difficult to work with, but no, he's wonderful. And then, like you know, Austin and Ben, my friends are in that band, and like, it's just so good. And again, it is instrumental, but it's like, it's interesting. It's super dynamic. I think, and not having vocals really allows it to be better. That's not the case, obviously, for every band, but I think sometimes it'd be nice to have someone shut the fuck up for a second and hear some other elements. And they really, they've played actually a couple shows that were not mine, but that was rather recently. Up until, like, this past year, they had only ever played shows when I asked them to. And it pissed me off, you know. But, so the first show was great. Tons of people came. It was awesome. Oh, my God, I performed. I forgot about that, me and my friend Eno. Um, Did you sing or? Yeah, that was like, I mean, like, I like, I just like to do things. Um, I love music, but I'm not a musician, but I, I mean, it wasn't that bad. Um, what did you sing? Was it original? Just, was it it original? was all like improvised. Yeah. It was fun. I used to do that with my friends a long time ago. It was really, it was a good time. Um, so you do the show. We do the show. You got the space. We got the space. Now, you still had the space for a few months. So did we tried do, to do a New Year's one? show. Okay. And it was freezing. And, and was no, no, no heat, heat in the building. No <laughs> heat. <laughs> and, and people showed up, and we put so much work into it. What was the theme? It was like, it was weird. We had one of my really good friends, Rob, and he had, he had made these incredible portraits of, like, creatures kind of like D&D-esque creatures. So we did like, we had like portraits up of like all these, you know, art. Everything was painted like green and gold. And, you know, we tried, it, it was just, it was weird. We were going for kitschy grandma's house on New Year's Eve was kind of the vibe. Like <laughs> kind of scary kitschy grandma's house. Yeah. It was like this horrific putrid picture I had found that reminded me of like a scary grandma, like Rocco's Modern Life, like... Like that grandma, yeah, like the flan grandma. And what would be the musical backdrop to that? Well, punk, we had the knees play, which are dope. I don't know if they're doing music anymore, but they were really good. 
and then my friend um, Jack, and he had a was he steaming manhole or Briscoe Darling? Now he has a band called Graham Grease that's like the best iteration of any music he's ever done. Um, which okay, is, I'm gonna I'm just cut you off. Yeah, yeah. I, I, my favorite thing about you is I have a friend, and then people are probably thinking. How many friends does Claire have? Because you have a lot, and it starts with, well, she only have her friends play. But if you realize that Claire's list of friends is very long, and a lot, they're mostly all some sort of artist or musician, I'm going. You make you meet these people in your travels and travails by putting these shows on, and you do a very good job of keeping in touch, building those relationships. Which leads me to this next question. Do you envision, so you see the picture and think, oh, really ugly painting that would be in my weird grandma's house that smells, that's covered in plastic and smells like moths. And that's the look. Now, what's the music am I going to put in there? What's the show that will be the soundtrack to the look? Or is that the, the, the main way you do it? Or do you do both ways? Do you do, do you go both ways? Where you hear a band and you're like, okay, they're going to lead this one and then we'll build the, the scene around them. Yeah, it's both. I like to be pretty open about it. Um, you know, one of the things, it's really, it's based on, do I like you? Number one, do I like you as a person? Number two, do I believe in you? And then, you know, three is... Are you a good fit? You know, it's never contingent on like one thing. It's always contingent on like two or three different factors because I find if you put all of your eggs in one basket, it's a really bad idea. So if the theme is important to me, I try to build the bill around the theme. But also, you know, I'm a big talker. So like, I'll talk to all my friends who are in bands, et cetera, about the show, before, and I won't even pitch it to them as them playing it. And I'll just see how they react. Like, are they interested? Do they sound genuinely excited for me, regardless if they play? And if, if their reaction makes me feel like they would be the right fit, then I will say, hey, like, would you be available? You know, how do you feel about playing this one? You know? So... I try to be really, I try to give it to people who I genuinely want to see play it. You know, it's no big prize. I mean, I don't know how they feel about it, but to me, I'm like, they're doing me a favor because they're taking a risk. I'm not a venue. I can't guarantee pay. You know, only recently have I been really adamantly trying to pay musicians and that's because only recently have I had the opportunity to. And so I always am super grateful, like so grateful, sometimes like emotional afterwards because it's like none of the things that I want to do would ever happen without my friends helping me achieve like my dream. And maybe they don't see it as that. Well, know? I think as a as a musician or performing artist or a filmmaker or anybody that's doing art, you're doing it for yourself, sort of, but you want people to hear it. You don't do art in a vacuum. That's no. a lie. You're lying, right? Yeah. I don't. You don't make a painting and then throw it in the closet and be like that's it. You want people to see it. You don't record a song, or that would be like us recording this podcast right now, and then I just delete it. 
well, what was the point of putting microphones up and doing it? Because I want people to hear it. If it's five people, 50,000 people, I actually don't care about that. But if one person is inspired by it, because most artists, I think, at least, and I'm speaking for me, and I could be wrong, so you can tell right. me I'm completely full of shit. Most artists, for me, you feel disenfranchised for a while at some point in your life. You feel like you don't connect. And your art is the way for you to express those feelings that maybe you didn't know how to when you were younger, and this was became your medium. And so... That's you having a conversation with somebody. Maybe you don't feel comfortable doing what we're doing. We both have, as the Irish say, the gift of gab. But we're, if you speak through your guitar or you speak through your violin or you speak through your paintbrush or writing a story, that's you speaking out to the world maybe in a safer way. And so what you're doing is you're providing a platform and what I noticed is that the three shows I've been to, everybody's extremely accepting. That's not always the case. And people pay attention. People are not looking at their phones. People are, and I watch this stuff. And the artists that I've seen you book, people are extremely respectful of what they're hearing from musicians, they don't know. That's what I find really interesting about the shows that you book and the bands and the artists that you chose. You had said to me, the band that was performing before Old War. Uh-huh. Old War kicked, what was that? Shoulderbird. Uh-huh. Yeah, Shoulderbird. Old War kicked so much ass. It was like, a 22 minute, and I looked at my class, like they're stuck. They're like, that's it. And they got off. They just rocked so hard. And I like, I lost my shit. I stood up. I was like, you guys fucking rock. And everyone's just like looking at me. I'm like, sorry, sorry. <laughs> you know, I was like, but they were that good. And I was just like, but everyone was just like staring at them. I'm like, well, somebody clap, but I think they were shell shocked, to be honest with you, because the, the singer has like a button down short shirt with, Sort of like his hair's messed up, like he just woke up. But they were the drummers got a shirt, but they were so tight. So that was like an experience for me where when I when you feel that visceral energy coming off of a band, there is no substitute for that. But that was juxtaposition the juxtaposition though with the opening band was Shoulderbird, which was like a kumbaya moment. It was at a very different low-key vibe. It was not on the same musical plane at all. It felt like beatnik poetry with the female singer. And it was like, but they were good. They were good. And so the way I thought it was, I because you had said to me, I'm not, I don't think I'm throwing it on the bus, like they're working it out. They're trying to figure out what they're doing. They're good musicians. Their songs were decent. They were good. But they were the appropriate act that set up Old War, that I was like, holy shit. Any other band before that, I don't know if it would have had that impact. It might have taken away. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like... So I don't know if that was deliberate or not, but that was leaves the fallout. Yeah, I mean, it's always deliberate in that I'm trying to make them both the star. I'm also trying to keep people engaged 
And I'm also trying to bring out different demographics of people who then are introduced to music they wouldn't normally listen to. That those are the three things. And I'm also trying to keep people like interested and excited, you know. It's like I have a platform. You're right to help people hopefully. So it's like I'm going to help them, you know. Old war. They wanted to play more shows. They had played a show in their rehearsal space when I went to see them to see if they were, you know, what I wanted for a Nighthawk show. And I was blown away. And I was like, so you guys play all the time? They're like, no. This is our first gig. Yes, in a while. <laughs> I love it. And I was like, what the fuck, you know? And then with Shoulderbird, it was like, it's my friend Meredith's project and, and Kyle, and it's great. And it, I, I think it has, like, an incredible amount of potential. I mean, part of the issue that night, and this is like another whole other part of it, is like, it's a, they're a hard band to do sound for because they have so many elements going on. Her voice is a lot softer. You know, of course, then you're also dealing with musicians who every musician, first thing they do is turn their amp up. I mean, that's like, you know, the thing that they do. And that's fine. That's, that's part of doing what I do is like mitigating that. But, you know, it's like the challenge is fun and, you know, and I'm always disappointed. I'm 90% of the time disappointed with every show I've ever done, with every band I've ever booked in the sense that I always feel like I could have done better, right? Like the sound check for the first band, I could have done a better job of making sure that like, you know, the levels were better, that we were, you know, mitigating certain issues. While her voice is thin. The timbre her voice is very wispy. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it got swallowed up. Right. And and with that kind of band, because the lyrics were thoughtful. Totally. So you you kind so of lost it. You want to hear them. Right. I know. And that's what I'm saying. It's like I always walk away and I'm like, look, it's not like I'm like I love to punish myself. It's just that like I like I like to be real. Like I mean, I do it for fun, I guess, but. Also, too, a lot of times, like, I really, really care. And when you really care about something, it's really normal to be disappointed. Really normal. In fact, it's, I think, better to be disappointed. Because if you just say, that was pretty good, it's like, well, pretty good's not good enough. And that doesn't really allow for a lot of growth and a lot of self-reflection. And it doesn't allow you to be better and to work on your craft. And if my craft is putting on a good show, there can always be a better show. Which is also why I'm not putting on any more shows this year, so. You're, you're taking a pause. Yeah. All right, hold on one second. I gotta switch cards here. Totally fine, I wanna, I wanna, we can take a pause. Yeah, you pause. <laughs> we'll be right back. <laughs> 